In January this year, a financial services company based in the US called Hindenburg made an analysis that rocked the Indian stock market. Hindenburg accused the Adani Group, which is one of India's big family-owned conglomerates, of fraud and corporate mismanagement. At the heart of the accusations was the opaque structure of this convoluted and sprawling family business. The accusations and refutations continue to fly back and forth. But fundamentally, it raises the question, are all family conglomerates a risky business? We pose this question to Aswat Damodaran, finance professor at Stern School of Business at New York University. Professor Damodaran has been called the Dean of Valuation due to his years of detailed studies into the value of companies. And he runs a very popular blog on the subject. I'm Ling Chue Ling, executive producer and journalist with CNA, and this is In Conversation with Professor Aswat Damodaran. Professor Damodaran, welcome to In Conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Looking at the Adani Group, it makes you wonder if all big family businesses are inherently risky. Are all big family conglomerates inherently risky? Risky is a strong word. They're opaque. I mean, what I mean by opaque is that now, family group companies, by their very nature, reveal less than they should because that's the way you maintain control. It's not because they're doing something unethical. Sometimes it's just a defensive mechanism to keep the rest of the world out. Because you have to remember, the history of these companies is they used to be privately owned family group companies. Now they're public. And they want the capital that comes from public markets, but the kind of scrutiny and exposure that brings makes them uncomfortable. So rather than describe them as risky, I describe them as opaque. But the old saying in investing is what you don't see is usually what hurts you. So the fact that they're opaque might mean that there are things about these companies you would like to know that you don't know because of the nature of these companies. So does that make them dangerous for the ordinary investor to put their money in? In other words, that should we be buying their stock? It's not so much dangerous as it's, you know, when you buy a family group company, you are buying, a, you're making a joint bet. You're making a bet on the company and on the family behind it. Now, when you buy a publicly traded company, you can look at the financials, you can look at the managers and say, you know what, this is a good company, I'm going to buy it. When you're buying a family group company, you're making a joint bet that not only is the company a good company, but the family running the company and the, and the companies that are in the group is a family that you can trust. I mean, that goes back in Asia. Family groups, over time, some family groups are more trusted than others. And trust becomes a key part of your investing because you're exposed. In a family group company, if the family tr truly wanted to, they, they could move wealth around completely legally, right? You have intra-company transactions and loans. And if a family is unscrupulous, they can essentially empower themselves and make themselves wealthier at your expense. So when you buy a family group company, you want to make sure that it is a family that you trust, which often means that outsiders buying family group companies without really knowing the family or understanding their history are more exposed than those on the inside who have a history of having invested in their family group company in the past. Well, so if you were someone outside of India, you would be more distrustful. Uh, how does that square up? 
I think that even within India, there are a lot of people who don't, because uh, let's take the older family groups in India, the Tatars, the Birlas, they've been around a century. So in a sense, Indian investors have, you know, they, they have experience with these families. They know these companies have lasted 100 years. And these companies have lasted partly because they don't take advantage of their investors. Because if you did, you wouldn't be able to play the game again. What makes the Adani group different is, first, it's a much younger group. It doesn't have the history that the older family groups do. And it's a group that also has come out of nowhere until about 20, no, maybe even a, a decade ago, they were a trading group and essentially didn't have the kind of exposure they have now. So because they climbed so quickly from being a small company to a big company, even among Indians, there is very little understanding of the group, its history, or even the family. I mean, most Indians could tell you if, if you have a family group company, who the family member is running the company, who the family members in the background are. With the Adani group, you have very little you know, transparency about that aspect of the company. The question that seems to, of course, pop up now, that would be, who's next? Can other family group companies then be just as easily uh, accused of all sorts of things, just as much as the Hindenburgs have done for the Adanis? What is the other company that could be accused of this? Could Reliance be accused of this? Could any of the other family group companies be accused of this? You can accuse any group of wrongdoing. What made the Adanis particularly susceptible was twofold. One is that political connections are strong and to one side. I mean, most family group companies in India have connections to both sides of the aisle. They have connections to the, 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 the governing party, the opposition party. The Adanis actually have a very strong connection to one side, which means almost every debate about the Adani group becomes a political debate. Now, who, which party are you for? And essentially, you can almost prejudge which side of the debate. And it becomes very toxic very quickly because almost everything becomes a question of, hey, what's your politics? You can accuse other groups, but they're less susceptible because you don't get the political piling on you will get with the Adani group. And second... I think we know far more about those other groups than we do about the Adani group. So the, the way the Adani group has managed itself has made itself more exposed to the kind of critique you got from the Hindenburg group. Now, the way I describe it, the Adani group is like a man wearing a trench coat in, in a room where you're worried about people flashing. You know, you wear a trench coat. People are going to be suspicious. Why is he wearing a trench coat? It's 95 degrees outside. The Adani group has set itself up in such a way that it gives rise to suspicions. And when it gives rise to suspicions, people assume the worst about you. So I think the other family groups could be accused, but they're not as exposed as the Adani group is to that, to the same criticism. So are you suggesting that for other family group companies, the fall in stock market price would not be so severe? That's exactly what I'm saying. You did the Adani group, if you if you think about it, has seen its market cap going up, go up 500% in the last few years. When you have that much fat you've built up, there's a lot more fat to burn off. I mean, at its peak, at a $200 billion value, it's an infrastructure business trading like a technology company. So forget about all the short selling and all the fraud allegations. The company was just massively overpriced to begin with. So when you're massively overpriced and somebody comes and pokes at the bubble, that's all you need, right? The bubble starts to... So I think that part of the reason here is when you rise this quickly out of nowhere, you have a lot more to give up. 
See, even after the 75% drop in their market cap, they're one of the most expensive infrastructure companies in the world, even after the price drop. That tells you about how inflated the price was before all of this started. Family businesses make up nearly 80% of India's GDP. Experts say that family-owned businesses are the backbone of Asian economies with strong brands that often are deeply trusted by generations of local consumers. But what happens when a foreign, non-local financial company points out problems? Is this being insightful? Or are there less altruistic motivations? Is Hindenburg a good whistleblowing research company or is it an opportunistic short seller? I think they're not mutually exclusive. You can do research and be opportunistic. Let's face it, it, when you're in markets, you're always opportunistic, right? I think I find it telling that only short sellers are tagged with these with these tags of you're opportunistic, you're short term. When people who go buy a stock and push it up 20% and sell it two weeks later are viewed as heroes. The Indian market in particular celebrates bullish investors. You've got legendary investors like Rakesh Junjunwala, who is a master trader who was viewed as the, as the India bull. So if you're somebody who talks up a company, you're viewed as a hero. But if you're somebody who says there's something wrong with the company, you're viewed as some kind of a villain. So I think that, you know, you can be both. Hindenburg is doing it to make money. Let's be quite clear. But that's what I would say about anybody who is in the markets. You're there to make money. Are they making up stuff? I don't think so. I think they are, in fact, finding things that are troubling, like the shell companies. In But I think one of the troubling things for me in this episode is almost everything in the Hindenburg report was already in the public domain in the Indian press years ago. And people did not seem to notice or never got traction. Rather than think of this as a bad company, we're going to put it out of business. Think about what the Adani Group did and think about the weaknesses in the India story that it was exploiting. The weaknesses include the fact that, you know, you've got family group companies that are opaque. You have weaknesses in the way markets are structured, where bullishness is priced above everything else. And weaknesses in the way regulators work, they took advantage of those weaknesses. So even if they did not break laws, they've exposed the weakness in the system. And this is a chance for India to fix those weaknesses rather than viewed as an assault on Indian, you know, I've heard people accuse me of not being patriotic. I'm not an Indian citizen anymore, so I can't be accused of that. But this has nothing to do with being patriotic. Pointing out that a company is opaque and it's taking advantage of the system is, I think, the patriotic thing to do because you need to fix those weaknesses because they will get bigger as India becomes more prosperous. Isn't one of the dangerous things, though, the fact that this whole uh, Adani versus Hindenburg ended up roiling the entire Indian stock market? It had repercussions that were far wider than just the Adani group. I think that um, there, there was always that danger, right, that what happened in the Adani group would spill over into the rest of the market. And I think that the Indian government, by doing what it's doing, is making that risk greater. By making this an assault, I mean, I've heard Indian politicians get up and accuse the, the Hindenburg you know, group of, 
of being out to get India, that they are really trying to sell the India story short. By, you know, the more you link the company to the country, the more you risk a spillover effect. So I think that it's critical that even if you're an Adani Group supporter, that you don't bind yourself at the hip to the company. Because that almost guarantees that whatever happened to the Adani Group is going to spill over into the rest of the market. And if you're a defender, don't make this about defending India. Make it about defending the company's practices and make it about the company and fix the problems that are part of the India story. But I think that, as I said, political stories always take on a life of their own. And this is less a business story and more a political story at this point. Yeah, interesting because uh, you've actually written about narratives and numbers and about how actually the whole thing is, is connected that uh, people who want to try and raise money, uh, startups, entrepreneurs or wherever they are, the whole idea of a company is also connected to the story of the company. And in this case, you have a story for the country. This is what makes it a particularly compelling case. It's not just a story about a company, but a company that produces infrastructure for a country that, at least in theory, is trying to be the country that displaces China as the growth engine for the world. So you've got a country story on top of a company story. And that's what made Adani, the Adani Group so attractive foreign institutional investors. They wanted to buy a piece of the India story, and this seemed like a perfect way to do it. I'm going to buy a company. It's connected to politics. It's producing infrastructure for a country that desperately needs it. It's in the right place at the right time. So part of this push-up in the price is if you're a foreign institutional investor trying to invest in the India story, this seemed to be the cleanest way to do it. But in the process, you push the price up tenfold. And at the wrong price, I don't care how good the story is, you're overpaying for the story. So it wasn't a good idea on the valuation. I mean, I you know with or without Hindenburg, I look at the, I looked at the company's value. I was never interested in the Adani Group to begin with as an investor because it's not the kind of company that attracts me. It's a company that's an infrastructure, low margin business, connected politically. You know, you know, I called it. There are three layers of opacity to, to the Adani Group. One is the family group layer. The second is. The, the fact that they're an infrastructure business. The layer. And the third is the layer that comes from the government putting a cloak on it and the political connection. So to me, it seemed like a trifecta that I did not want. A family group, which is opaque, that's politically connected, to me, is a dangerous investment because one piece, all it needs is one piece to break. I mean, I told people, what if in the next election, you have a loss for the governing party? If you've connected yourself so strongly to a party, you run the risk of your entire valuation kind of unraveling. And I don't like investing in companies like those. So I took my first look at the Adani Group's valuation when Hindenburg targeted them. And I was shocked at the prices people were paying for a business that at its core is a boring low margin business. But isn't this a problem that we have all over Asia? Many Asian companies are actually family businesses as well. So could this not also be in any other country in Asia the same problem? I think I don't have a problem with family group companies. As I said, there are some family group companies I'm willing to invest in because they're good companies. TCS, Tata Consulting Services, is part of the family group. But to me, it's a very good company to invest in. The Tata Group has tried to become more transparent. They've had their 
that trip ups along the way. But not all family group companies are created equal. And remember, there is an advantage that family group companies have over the professionally managed publicly traded companies in the U.S., which is these families have their entire wealth tied up in the company. You're not going to be flying first class to London just to burn up somebody else's money. They are investing their own money, and that makes them more careful. So there are good things that come with being a family group company that I think have to be weighed in when you invest. Some of the oldest companies in the face of the earth are family-owned and family-run. So do you agree with a Credit Suisse study that was done some years ago that said family group company stocks actually do better than the stocks of companies that are not owned by families? That really does not surprise me. I've seen professionally managed companies be very badly managed because managers have their own incentive systems. I've long bemoaned this culture of acquiring other companies and paying big premiums because managers want to build empires. Family group companies don't do that because it's your own money. When you're spending other people's money, you can be sloppy. You can pay millions of dollars to those ESG consultants to come in and tell you how to increase your ESG score. It's an absurd practice, but it's other people's money. So I think that um, that when you have family group companies, there are good things that come with the package and are bad things. And you as an investor have to trade off and decide whether the good outweighs the bad. And there are lots of Asian family group companies where the good outweighs the bad. Some studies show that family businesses perform better than others. But opaque business practices can push investors away. Should ordinary investors be wary of family-run conglomerates and their stocks? What can they do to cash in on such family businesses safely? If you had a piece of advice that you would give to the ordinary investor, what would it be? What are the red flags and what are the green flags? What should I be looking out for? How do I not get embroiled no. in, in something like uh, uh, the Adani Group and, and, and all its troubles now? I would say that if you read a financial report and there's a lot more you don't understand than you do, that's a, that's a red flag. So if you see special purpose entities, you see uh, income coming from places, you're not sure where it's coming from. But 10 years ago, I created this index of transparency where I go through a 10K looking for things and I actually come up with a score. The higher the score, the more opaque you are as a company. The most opaque company in the world at that time was GE. Opacity comes in lots of different ways, right? GE's opacity came from the fact that there are 26 different businesses, there are a bank in the middle of the company. And I said, look, I'm not saying GE is a bad company, but I'm saying there's a lot more I don't know about GE than I don't know about Walmart. So given a choice between the two companies, if they're roughly similarly valued, I'm going to go with Walmart over GE every single time. It does mean that you want to go with companies that are cleaner place. They're in a single business. They're not trying to do multiple things. They're not entering into new businesses, making your life difficult. Are family-owned businesses good investments? They can be if the family is not obsessed with control, is willing to be transparent about its holdings, and does not encourage intra-company. I mean, I do not like intra-company transactions run amok. So the cleaner the, the family group can keep the companies, the better they become as investments. Look for transparency, even in family group companies, how much they reveal about themselves. 
And one thing I would strongly advise is if you have a family group company where the family seems intent on control over everything else, I would say avoid the company. Because those companies will do terrible things to companies just to keep control. Like they, in the case of the Adani Group, I think they borrowed simply because they did not want to issue shares and dilute their holding. They borrowed to three times what I think they should have borrowed. It's unhealthy, but they were so fixated on control. In fact, when the Adani Group story is stored, I think it's going to be a story of controlled run amok. That this is a group that cared so much about maintaining control that they did some stupid things from a business standpoint to preserve that control. How do you choose what stocks to buy? I value them. I mean, I'm a value person. I'm an old-fashioned value person. I look at the business. I try my best. I make mistakes. But I try to steer away from the pricing game. The pricing game is we let other people drive your pricing. You look at you know, multiples and comparables. I try to avoid that because it's not my game. So it does mean that it takes me more time to find a good company, but I'm not a portfolio manager. I don't have to find 100 stocks here. If I find five, I'm in good shape. This sounds suspiciously like a Warren Buffett uh, tactic. The only difference is Warren stays with mature companies, but I'll buy a growth company at the right price. I'll buy a Grab at the right price. I will buy an Ola at the right price. For me, a company is undervalued if the price is lower than value, and I'm willing to attach value to future growth, far more so than the old-time value investors are. And if you can understand what, the fa what this family group company is doing, that helps as well. Absolutely, absolutely. That's part of the transparency issue. You want to know what the company does and where it makes its money because that'll make you sleep better at night when you invest in that company. Professor, thank you very much for being on In Conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast version of a television interview with Professor Aswat Damodaran, finance professor at Stern School of Business. This is part of CNA's longest-running weekly interview show, In Conversation. When in season, In Conversation airs every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Singapore time on Mediacorp CNA. You can also catch us online at cna.asia or on YouTube. I'm executive producer Ling Xueling, and thank you for listening.